The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
Praise God. Good morning and Merry Christmas. It's great to be in the house of the Lord, is it not? I love this place. Julie and I had a great conversation with a friend of ours uh, last week, and she's one of those people that always challenges us and with her questions and throughout the many discussions that we have. In the last conversation, we ended up talking about what it means to love God. Psalm 91, one of my all-time favorite scriptures, is certainly very popular. It's also a very powerful prayer. If you have a, a loved one that's not maybe right with the Lord or whatever, you pray Psalm 91 over him. And when you pray the Word of God, he pays attention. And uh, it's a really powerful scripture. Verses 14 through 16 say, it concludes the psalm. It says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him because he acknowledges my name. He'll call upon me and I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Praise God. Because he loves me, says the Lord. You know, we say it in here all the time, L1 and L2, love God and love others. And that's something we get directly from Jesus himself who said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your body. And love your neighbor as yourself. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It's beautiful. It's simple. And it's not necessarily easy to love other people. But the Bible tells us if we do love God, then we are going to love his children too. Jesus said, what you've done to the least of these, you've done directly to me. And John tells us that everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves the child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands, which are not burdensome. Because we loved him because he first loved us. However, anyone that claims to love God and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love their God whom they have not seen. And anyone who loves God must love his brother and sister. So the two are tied together. And if I'm being honest, as I must in church, it's a sin to lie in church. When I read this, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know about you guys, because we do think it's easy to love God. Um, but it's not easy to love people. And the Bible says if we love God, we have to love people. And sometimes that's not very awesome at all, because people are jerks and because they <laughs> steal. <laughs> You've met some of these people, have you not? <laughs> I, too, have been a jerk from time to time, so just putting that out there. They steal and they cheat and they lie and they're selfish and they indulge and they revel and they live in denial and they live in excess and they attack and they wound and they hurt and they deceive. People cause pain. And there's not a one of us in this room who's not been hurt deeply by someone. And usually the most pain comes from the people that you love, the people that are closest to you. And we all know this. So I'm an IT guy, as you all probably know by now. I like logic. I like reason. I like math. 
I like laws. I like straight and narrow, love binary, yes or no, one or two, on or off, heaven or hell, true or false. I like that. And so I immediately try to put the Word of God when I read it and I read what Jesus is saying. I try to put it into a formula because that's what I do. And it really makes it easy for me to try and live a lifestyle that the Bible's telling me to do, except here's the problem. It doesn't work that way. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I've always interpreted that backwards until this conversation with my friend. Jesus, I always said, believe that he said, you'll prove your love for me by obeying my commandments. That's how you show me that you love me. And so I'd start to list out all the commandments because I'm really methodical. And some of the commandments super easy to keep. I could go into several that are easy for me to keep. Um, and there's a bunch that are not quite as easy to keep, and I just assume they weren't in there. But they are in there, and you don't get to pick and choose. It's not the Burger King Bible, have it your way. You get to do whatever God tells you to do. You have to do it that way. And so I really struggled with that because I did love the Lord, and I still love him, and I've always loved him. But it's hard to always obey him and love other people. So Paul tells us this wonderful, beautiful thing um, in Corinthians. He said the purpose of the law is to show people that they can't keep it. The beauty of God's law is it shows us how imperfect we are and that we have to have a Savior. Because if we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know right from wrong because it wouldn't exist. And that's the purpose of the law. It's beautiful. And see, Jesus is the only person who kept the law, and he died for everybody. He died for the good people. He died for the bad people. He died for the jerks. He died for the mediocre he died for us all. So he loved perfectly. Can you imagine what that took when he was nailed to the cross to sit there and say, Father, forgive him? That's a big deal. It's hard for me to forgive somebody when they cut me off in traffic. You know, I have to be very careful if I have a central Christian bumper sticker on my car as I'm driving. You know, you don't want to <laughs> wave politely to the people. Um, because of what Jesus has done, we can love perfectly through him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But what I really believe he's saying after my conversation with a friend is this. He said, because you love me, you'll naturally keep my commandments. It will flow out of you like streams of living water. You will not prove your love to me by obedience. You'll obey me because you love me. So the key is to love God, and then he loves through us. And that's, that's the key, because truthfully, none of us can keep the law. So our friend said it best when she said this. She said, obedience to God is the fruit of love, not the genesis of it. Obedience does not cause love. Obedience happens because of love. When we love God, we naturally obey him, and his nature becomes our own, and we reflect his love to the lost and lonely. Praise God, that's a pretty powerful statement. Does this mean we never make a mistake or lose our tempers or that we never stumble or get angry? I wish it did, but it, it doesn't. We all struggle and fall. That's why Paul said, I forget what's behind, and I press on to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we can ask forgiveness when we fail, and his blood covers us. And if we can't love people perfectly in ourselves, we can love them through him who gives us strength. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. If we seek to love the Lord first, foremost, and always, that's why he said, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your body, with all your soul, love God. He will change your spiritual DNA so that his love flows out of you and into everybody else. And that keeps the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we celebrate the season of your birth into this fallen and simple world, and as we take communion, I pray that our hearts are open to you, 
that our love for you flows out from us and that you change us into those whom you wish us to be. Remove from us anything that displeases you so that we can love you and that we can love all around you. In Jesus' name, amen.
let visit your house unannounced that's the key unannounced um do you let door-to-door salesmen watch anybody under here uh, under 40 doesn't even know what that is all right uh my dad was a fuller brush salesman knock 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 went into houses selling things would you let that happen in our world today probably not all right it's not as popular as it used to be would you let an irs agent just pop by or would you be hiding behind the door, peeking out the window, going, I'm not here? Uh, church folk. Uh, it just depends on which church folk, you know. I'm not sure. Now, grandkids, you'd let, okay? I mean, let's be honest. Grandkids can pop by. But I'm going to make a sweeping generality right here and, and watch with your, you can agree or disagree, nod along. I think mostly, typically, most of the time, it is men that are more okay with people popping by than women. Is that a fair generality? And why would that be? One reason, one reason only. My house, right? I don't want you to see in my house. I don't know. Is it clean enough? It's never clean enough. We have kids. We have, you know, there's, there's life all around. You see, there's been a cultural change since the days of Andy Griffith. In the 50s and 60s, if you ever watched Andy Griffith, they sat on the front porch. They had a porch swing. They visited. But somewhere in the 80s, houses started being built with back decks. It was behind the house, secluded away from people. Human hearts can be the same way. Some human hearts have a welcome mat. Come on in. Some have a scarecrow out there. I don't really want you in here. Keeping people away. We're starting a new series today. You hope, hope you saw the sign, Visitations. We're going to talk for the next few weeks about who visited Jesus and, and how he visited people. And let's be honest, it's super easy to tune out the Christmas story, all right? We all know what Don is preaching in December. It is not a shocker, okay? Uh, and we all know the Christmas story. We've seen Charlie Brown. It's not a real big deal, all right? And so it's easy to tune this out. And I'm asking you not to because, you see, in context, the Christmas story 2,000 years ago was a bunch of people that were weary of waiting for a Savior. All through the Old Testament... A Messiah had been promised. There is one that is coming. He will reclaim our country. He will reclaim our people. We will be God's people. But you see, it was promised. They hadn't heard from him in a long, long time. For 400 years, the last word of the book of Malachi and the first word of the book of Matthew, there's 400 years. You have a one page in between your New Testament and Old Testament, right? 400 years, that's what that represents. And... And there's silence. Would it be easy to, to wear out of talking to God if you're not hearing anything? And just like them, I think we often give up on our prayers and, and on His promises when we see nothing happen. And, and just when we aren't looking, He often shows up in very surprising ways. We're going to look today at two men that God visits in the form of an angel. We're, 
Don't get caught up in angels. We'll talk about them later, okay? But this is God coming to talk to some people in the form of an angel. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. If you'll start turning with me. How many brought your Bible? Lift them up, lift them up. I don't care if it's an iPad or a Bible. Uh, Cody brought a parallel. We want to be a Bible-believing church, a Bible-using church. If you don't have a Bible, we will get you one. If you wear it out, I will get you another one, all right? I, we, we believe in the Word. If you're joining us online, if you're listening on the radio, get your Bible out because we want to see the backstory to this. And there's not a lot of backstory except that they're good people and they're old. Pick up in verse 5 of chapter 1. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commands and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple. For his order was on duty that week, as was the custom of the priests. He was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him, but the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son. And you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you don't believe what I said... You'll be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Now, we don't get a lot of backstory out of this, and I hope you were listening, but that they are good people and that they're fairly old. Zechariah was one of a host of priests. There could have been as many as 20,000 priests serving in the temple area and they came up on rotation and it came up his turn to be in the time uh praying for the people this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to go into the temple and pray on behalf of all of his people in fact it said there was a large crowd out there praying for him while he prayed for other people and while he's in there gabriel shows up and it says zechariah was terrified i think that's Probably appropriate, don't you? It was a, 
He says he was overwhelmed with fear. Friends, fear is very natural when we don't understand what's going on. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is in our nature. We don't know what's going on. Put yourself in his sandals for a minute. You've never done this before. You're standing in the temple and all of a sudden an angel shows up. Do you want to text somebody and say, does this happen to everybody in here? I mean, he doesn't know what's going on. It's very natural to be afraid, but it's, it may not be our best response. Just because it's unknown to us doesn't mean it's unknown to God. We may be really afraid and we may not understand what's going on in the world, but just because we don't understand it doesn't mean God doesn't understand it. Zechariah objects and he doubts. If you look at verse 18, it says, How can I be sure? Why is it we often, when we see a challenge from God, we feel a calling from God, we quickly list our strengths and our abilities and our lack thereof? Moses did it. Gideon did it. Lots of people did it. Wait, wait, wait. I can't do that. We list all of the things that we can't do. You know what's really weird? is We don't need to be sure of our work. You know what we need to be sure of? We need to be sure of hope. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Faith is the assurance of the things we hope for. We need to be sure that we have hope. We have somebody we can hope in, and our hope is strong. And, and another thing that's going to come up in this series that is really important is that age doesn't matter to an ageless God. doesn't really matter. You see, in this story, he's going to pluck two teenagers from Jerusalem High School and two old people from the nursing home outside of Jerusalem. He's going to give them both kids. And he's not really going to explain it too much. Do you notice that Elizabeth didn't get the memo? Did anybody catch that? Only Zechariah got the memo. (laughs) And he can't tell her. He can't tell her. They're just... Uh, What do I do now? Uh, I mean, she doesn't even know that a baby is coming. But they are not the focal point of this story. The visit from God is the biggest point. Christmas is an invitation to a visitation. Christmas is inviting us to visit His story, not ours. It's inviting us to trust His plan, not ours. Our goal should never be to work harder. It should be to trust Him more. I, I appreciate Richard's words so much today that, that obedience is not the genesis of love. It's the fruit of love. It's we obey because He loved us. And our goal should be to think and to talk and to act like we really trust Him. Even when things don't make any sense, even when things are crazy outside, we act like we trust him because we do. Amen? This guy that's coming up on the screen is a guy named Daniel Bliss. He's a World War II veteran, uh, Air Force veteran from World War II and Korea. Uh, His wife of 72 years, they met when she was an aide for the U.S. Coast Guard in World War II. Uh, They grew up, they had a a great family. In July 4th of 2019, they had a big family gathering in Ohio. Uh, Kids, grandkids, July 4th, cookout, big pool, uh, big family, you know, the whole thing. I mean, just a a big shindig, right? And during this big party, 
one of the great grandkids was a younger boy, and he was struggling. He couldn't. They were trying to get him to go off the diving board. And it wasn't like a high dive. It was one of those, you know, the ones that just stick out over the pool, just you know, basically fall off of it, right? And they were, they were pleading with this kid, come on, you do it. And they'd beg him, and they'd plead, and they'd cajole, and they'd, they'd you know, they'd logic. They'd, okay, here, this is not going to hurt you. They would come up with all this. Well, Daniel, a 95-year-old veteran, listens to all this for a little while. And then he gets up and he goes in the house, and he puts on his swim trunks. And he comes back out with the help of a cane and some relatives. He shows them how to do it. That's a picture of him, 95 years old, flexing, looking at his muscles. He didn't explain to the kid how to do this. He showed him. Some of you have jumped ahead on the metaphor already. Jesus didn't come to logic us into heaven. He didn't cajole us into obedience. He came to show us. He came to show us how badly our God wants a relationship with us. How deep and how important that is. And it continues to remind me of this simple fact. God is good. Amen. There we go. This is a slide Franklin used in his message last week, powerful message, that life is sometimes hard. God is always good. We say it so casually, but we need to listen intently to those words. God is good. He did not. He was under no obligation to get a kid to this old couple. He could have said, well, all right, if that's how you're going to be, I'm out of here, and I'm going to go find me another couple. He didn't have to do that, but he chose them, and he gave the goodness of his love and this child into them. God willingly does things for us, not because we deserve it, but because He loves us. He gives us so many wonderful things in our world. He gives us leaves that change color. He gives us snickerdoodle cookies, which are pretty epic, and especially when they're warm and a big glass of cold milk. Hello. He didn't have to make mint chocolate chip ice cream taste so good, but He did. Oh my goodness. The feel of fresh strings on a guitar. The smell of a paperback book. And don't lie to me and tell me you don't do that. We all do that. We're like, (laughs) crack. I don't know what it is, but it's awesome. The warmth of a fireplace. The laughter of children. Psalm 103 and the verse that that, um, uh, Samantha read earlier when it talks about the sins east from the west... It starts out, Psalm 103, and he says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He treats us better than we deserve. Our God is good. There is so much around us that is good, that is from Him. But friends, get this. God's goodness has never been affected by the world's badness. The world's craziness does not limit the goodness of our God. Matthew chapter 5 tells us he gives sunlight to the evil and to the good. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. But too often we look at the awful stuff that's going on out of the world and we go, what are we going to do? Do you hear who the key character was in that last statement? What are we going to do? We are not called to do that. 
so much around us is crazy. Yes, the world is nuts, and yes, the state is crazy, and, and yes, there's cancer, and yes, there's problems, and, and divorce, and financial ruin, and there's all these things, but we trust a God that is the God, and that God is good. Is, we just sang that song, is he worthy of this? Yes, he is. And I pray that we get that, no matter what is going on in our world, that He is good. But God comes to another gentleman. An angel visits another man over in the, uh, the book of Matthew. Go back over to Matthew chapter 1, where we're going to pick up on another fella. Now, these are angels visiting fellas, and this angel is not named. A lot of scholars believe this is probably Gabriel as well, the one that, that told of John the Baptist being born and the one that had already visited Mary in the book of Luke. But in the, in the Matthew version, this is how it starts in verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, his mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she'll have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. I think we, with our 21st century eyes and our modern mind, we miss some of the cultural problems here. What a lot of us don't understand is these are probably teenagers. As, as young as 13 years old, they might have been as old as 16. Now, in that culture, we're not saying this is what happened there, but in that culture there was betrothals. Now, what that means is two dads got together over a cup of coffee and said, hey, you got a daughter, I got a son, let's make a deal, all right? And, and when you have a daughter, those things start to look a lot better, you know, arranged marriages. You know. Wait a minute. I'm not so against this now. Uh, hold on here a second. That's a side note. Keep that for later. Um, there was betrothals, all right? And you, uh, there was a plan for them to be married. Now, then there was an engagement that was usually approximately a year long, okay? Um, somewhere in the line, whether they got to know each other or what, they were committed to each other. That was usually about a year where the husband went off and built a house for the, the bride. It was somewhere in this year that Mary walked up to her future husband and said, Hey, guess what? I'm going to have a baby. Now, how do you react to that if you're him? Here are, think of some of the emotions that are going through his. Embarrassment. What is everybody going to think? What are they going to think about me? Anger. Hey, she's messing around on me. What about being afraid? I don't think we get the economic and political fallout that would happen. We find out later Joseph's a carpenter, but if he's 
got that kind of reputation in town, ain't, ain't nobody hiring that boy. I mean, he's not going to get any work. He's not going to have any authority in the community. But Joseph acted on the dream. In verse 24, he took her as his wife. Before the engagement part was over, he was trying to protect her. He did exactly what God said. Friends, you need to know this. Pleasing God often means disappointing people. Pleasing God often means we let people down. Now, Joseph listened to God, but he probably paid a price with the people of the community. He probably paid a price with his reputation. You see, Christmas is an invitation to be visited, to trust his plan, not mine. Maybe Let's see if we can make it a little more practical. Maybe you have made a commitment in your heart, and you feel like God is calling you to fast. And so you're going to choose to fast every day at lunch. And all your friends come up and say, oh, come on, go to El Rancho with us. It's not that big deal. It's just one day. You hearing what I'm saying? And you choose to obey God, you're going to disappoint some people. Some of our young people choosing to wait until marriage for relations. It's hard. It's a challenge. And, and so much pressure from all around. Maybe, maybe you're choosing to say no to some toxic family members or activities that might tear up your family. You see, when we say a, sta- a statement like this often means disappointing people, it's easy to point out there and say we're disappointing the world. But sometimes you're disappointing godly people. You hearing me? And that's hard. Sometimes it's godly people. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's people that are trying to get you to say something or act a certain way or be angry about something or or hold a grudge at somebody even though they're godly people. They're calling you to do things that are against what God is saying. Choosing God's way sometimes disappoints people. Joseph listened to God. He acted on his words even when there were consequences. Do you realize that ordinary obedience precedes extraordinary moves of God? Many times, the greatest things that are happening in our life are because we obeyed every day. Ordinary obedience. Do you realize God's not calling us to fix the world? He never really called us to fix the world. He called us to be obedient. To live out of our love of Him and obey Him. He, he rarely asks us to do these huge, monstrous things. Usually He's asking us to obey every day consistently, simple obedience. So let me ask a couple of questions. Have you spoken to that person about Jesus? Right when I say that, some of you got a, a name in your head. Some of you got a face in your head. And you go... Now, some of you, you're not right now. You're trying to process that. But some of you already know exactly who we're talking about. You know that God has put on your heart to talk to that person. You know that God has put on your heart, but something's holding you back. When are you going to talk to that person about Jesus? It's that simple. It's a simple act of obedience, a simple act of faith. What about this? Are you going to invite someone? Have you invited someone to attend church with you? Some of you have brought guests and brought friends. Thank you. Continue to do that. We need to be a welcoming place. 
But it's a simple act, an act of faith that he has called us to do. In that line that Franklin and I, in the song that we wrote this week, uh, we don't get to do that very often, and, and some inspiration happened, and some time forced, we, we made it happen, and we got to do that. And one of the lines in there we use is, we welcome you to change our point of view. That was a really specific line. We need to be corporately a place of welcome, not a club, but a place of invitation. Are we? Now, I, I think we are. I think we are, but we should never get casual about that. Make sure before you leave this room, you look around. If there are people you don't recognize, go up and welcome them. Maybe they've been here a long time. Maybe they just this is your first time here. We want you to know you're valuable and you're wanted here. But at the same time, is your heart welcoming to Him? Are you welcoming God in, in a lot of different areas? Maybe it's in an unsuspected way. Scripture tells us, make sure we are welcoming strangers because we might be entertaining angels. A visitor from God. You ever wondered that you might be a visitor from God to somebody else? Are you welcoming? Because Christmas time and the Christmas story is an invitation. Now, I'm not much of a poet. In fact, uh, the songwriting, that's Franklin's thing. He's real good at it. I, and I'm not even a big fan of poetry. I'm deeply sorry, Miss Vickers. I, I just really never really liked it that much. I, I, but I stumbled on a poem this week. Somebody sent one to me that, that really, really hit me. And this is called The Christmas Coat. A simple man was shopping around one day in a women's clothing store. He'd found his wife a Christmas coat, and it was headed for the door. When he bumped into a little boy that looked like he was lost, and he said, Mister, can you help me find out how much something costs? Here it is, almost Christmas, and the nights are getting cold. Wintertime is on us, and my mom don't have a coat. I've been working for the neighbors and saving for a time and in his tiny outstretched hand was a dollar and a dime. His gaze went from that big-eyed boy to the pretty Christmas coat, and he finally cleared away the lump that had gathered in his throat. He said, son, that's what this coat costs. We're lucky that we found her. And he turned around and gave a wink to the lady at the counter. She put it in a pretty box and wrapped it up just so, went off in the back to find a big red Christmas bow. He said, I thank you for your help, sir, and I kindly thank you, ma'am. I hope y'all are going to have a good Christmas, because now I know I am. Well, the simple man walked home, busted, except for that dollar and the dime, thinking he'd just have to buy the coat another time. He told his wife that Christmas this year wouldn't be much fun, and he gently took her in his arms and told her what he'd done. She smiled and said, Why, you old softy, I wouldn't trade you for a farm. I got two or three old coats, and your love to keep me warm. She put that money in a matchbox and placed it on their tree, and she said, That is the grandest gift you have ever given me. The years went by like years will do when people are in love. The marriage was a golden bond that was forged by God above. 
Then one day came some bitter news that filled his heart with fright. The doctor told the old man's wife she was going to lose her sight. Doc said, there's an operation we can do, but it puts me on a spot because it's a quite complex procedure and it's going to cost a lot. The old man said, Doc, I'm a failure. I've made no preparation. We don't have the money it'll take to have that kind of an operation. The doctor got the strangest look and he sat there for a while and then he slowly nodded and he broke out in a smile. He said, why, sir, you can't fool me. You're, the, you're a very wealthy man. You, long ago, you invested in the world's best savings plan. I'll see she gets the best of care. She's going to be just fine. And the total cost to you, old friend, is a dollar and a dime. The old man stared in disbelief. And then he recognized that smile. The one he'd seen those years ago on the face of a thoughtful child. The doc said, what you gave to me that day was much more than a coat. You gave me the gift of giving. You gave my mother hope. You see, she'd been mistreated, neglected, and abused. But she gave life one more chance. And it is because of you. Now, every year she takes that coat and lays it beneath our tree. It represents to us the things that Christmas ought to be. She says that when we leave this world for a better home someday, the only things that we'll take with us are the things we gave away. Will you let Him visit you? That's why we're calling it visitations. Will you welcome Him? You never know how He might visit you. You never know where He might visit you. And you never know where and how He might use you to be His messenger to somebody else. We've got to have a ready heart. He is inviting you into His story. We've got to have an open idea, an open heart, an open welcome mat. Will you let Him change your point of view? Now, I know you just heard this song just a little while ago, but Franklin's going to lead us in that chorus a little bit. And maybe, maybe you need a change of outlook. And that's what this season has given us. An opportunity to see things differently. Maybe you're struggling with your grief. You're struggling with your addiction. You're struggling with your brokenness. And you don't know which way to turn. Let us pray with you. Let Him change how you are viewing what's going on in your world. Because He is good. Less of me. More of you. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.